1: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
2: Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage and conserve rock art, both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect and coordinate treasures of alta and baja california rock art of which there are many and diverse we also work closely with native americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites so for more info about the fabulous california rock art foundation you can go to carockart.org also i'm i'm open to give me a call 805-312-2261 we would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501C3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land.
1: You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archeology. span Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions.
2: Hello out there in archeology span podcast land. This is your host for episode 119, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. We have a real treat for you this time. We've discovered a, a new panel of rock art that is just endlessly engaging. It's on the Eastern skirt of the Sierras and it is a package of unbelievable imagery that will be enticing and mesmerizing.
1: Welcome to the show, everybody. If you're hearing my voice, Chris Webster, that means that Alan and I are talking about something cool. So, Alan, what are we talking about today?
2: Well, Chris, you know, I've been kicking around the Cosos for about 50 years now and seeing thousands and thousands of images of rock art. It's one of the densest areas of rock art in the entire Western Hemisphere. There's possibly about Mm. 200,000 individual instances of rock art. But I hadn't gone to a site called the Portuguese Bench, which is very well known. It's a site that the Archaeological Institute has acquired. It was uh, excavated in part by David S. Whitley, who's one of the most prestigious rock art professionals in all the land. Mm. And they excavated a village site on the eastern skirt of the Sierras. And it was uh, mainly of the Newberry period, goes from about 2000 BC to about circa AD 1 and I heard that there was a, a rock art panel there. I said, you know, I'd love to see that rock art panel, see what it is. Mm-hmm. Well, they they showed, they showed it to me and I was gobsmacked. It's an enormous pillar a panel of granite that juts out of the ground. It's big as hell and it's covered with imagery, covered. But you couldn't see it very well. It's on mm-hmm. granite, which is very unusual. So we took a bunch of pictures of it. We gave it to a a specialist to work up in post-process, and the more he studied it, the more interesting it got. And it ended up being probably one of the most outstanding panels of imagery I've ever seen, and the one that is certainly has some of the most supernatural content and, I would say, metaphorically significant cosmological elements that I've ever seen packed into one panel. Hmm. So... I thought it would be worthy to talk a little bit about it and and explain why this particular panel may be rather important.
1: Yeah. Check this out in the show notes. So we've got a copy of this picture in there, and it's really a drawing of the panel that was done. And we'll put some attribution and some credits down there in the show notes. But take a look at it, because while we're talking about this, you're really going to want to see it. So, But I've seen... And I know you have too, but I've seen some panels with a lot of different things on it, right? A lot of different motifs. And the cool thing about this one is there's so many different things on it, right? There's so many, there's not like one common thing or common thread or even common style throughout this panel. There's just so many things going on here that you really just yes, got to sit and take it in. It's
2: a very diverse, it has it has every possible iconographic, you know, would you call it metaphorical, indexical you know, instrument that I've seen in the Kosos Mm -hmm. for the last 50 years all arrayed on this panel. We put together a a book that you've heard a lot about that we spent a couple of years putting together, and it's all about the uh, serpent as a vehicle or indexical animal or semiotic metaphor Mm -hmm. to uh, understand the cosmological significance and the thread that goes through from Mm -hmm. the most ancient uto Aztecan people all the way through from Eastern California to the American Southwest to the high cultures of Mexico. And that was just put out by Bergen. It's called The Iconicity of the Udo-Aztecans. It's by Tirtha Mukahabadi and myself. Mm-hmm. And the reason I reason I talk about that is this panel is full of snakes and serpents, literally full. You look at it. How many snakes are there? Oh, my word. They're all over the panel, aren't they?
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's so many.
2: Yeah. Now, the other thing that's unusual about the panel is of all the images I've seen of snakes in the Kosos, they usually are shown in association alongside of some sort of a animal human figure, let's say. Mhm. I've only I've only seen it I think two other times where they're actually in a particular figure's hand right or mouth just hmm. twice and all the thousands okay. and thousands of panels I've seen really? this one has it one, once twice uh, even three <laughs> times it looks like they're holding the snake in their hand and, Yeah, they are and you can tell what kind of snakes these are because I've learned from snake experts that when you have these triangular uh, heads on those snakes they are the poisonous snakes, the famous rattlesnakes, rather than the bull snake or any other kind mm-hmm. of snake. These are the these are the venomous ones, the ones that'll poison and and can potentially kill you.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm seeing I see at least 3 and possibly the figure on the top might be holding two snakes, but it's probably something smaller like a staff or a stick. 'cause it's uh, or yeah. even a bone. It almost looks like a femur. <laughs> the top yeah. one is holding it as his other hand. Well yeah.
2: Well the interesting thing yeah, the interesting thing about that topmost figure, he or she, I think it's a she, you know, has human like qualities. The feet are human, the, the torso is human, it's a solid bodied figure. I see. But it. the face the face is a star. I have never ever seen a face as a star anywhere in the Kos. Anywhere. Never never yeah. never never
1: and i think it might be a a male figure too because there's no there's no detail
2: in the chest but i'm pretty sure it has genitals so i'm not really sure right now if you look very closely at the genitals it's a it's an inverted u and that's a uterus and that's a female and in fact okay. if you look at at all okay. three of those figures they have something there in their you know in the genital package that would lead us Sometimes they call it a pudenda or a pudendum. Anyways, most likely those are all three are females. Okay. And and one of the reasons I say that is not given that these are so informative. It's that I'm finishing up a a multi-year study of, you know, all of these decorated animal human figures throughout the Kosos. We've classified them. We've analyzed them Mm -hmm. to death, by the way. And it runs that... Almost three or four to one feminine versus masculine. The feminine Hmm. figures are overwhelmingly exemplified during this period of time. And they have the the decorated torsos rather than the solid bodies. And those solid bodies come in a little bit later. And in a big way, they become men. That's when the men come in. Hmm. Interesting.
1: Yeah. One of the other figures that's in here looks like it's drawn inside of another animal it right is right
2: in the it center is. It is. yes yes I've never, seen it. I've never seen that either that's the first for me
0: yeah
2: i think that's either a it, it could be a bobcat it could be a cougar it could be a mountain lion could it could be a wolf or a or some something like that the figure above it is it definitely a mountain lion it's they usually show them with very very long and extended tails and the rounded mm. ends of their legs those little club-like feet the little circular right. feet are sort of a clue to that. But uh, yeah, that little, little figure the little diminished figure that's inside of the other animal is, is rather unique. There are bighorn sheep all throughout the whole figure, mm-hmm. but most of them, most of them are not classic Koso in, in style. They're a little bit earlier really? and all the non-Koso ones are moving from right to left and the two Coso ones are moving from left to right. There's a Coso bighorn sheep off to the right. And there's one you can just see ever so slightly, sort of as a, just to the right of that uh, mountain lion up at the top. And it's got that classic bifurcated front-facing front mm. look to it. And, that, and you could miss it very easily. I yeah. did several times before, I, before it jumped out and bit me. But it's got stars wow. all over it, which I haven't seen ever anywhere else in terms of the stars it's got the projectile points that we keep talking about the elko the series projectile points those ones mm-hmm. that are diagnostic of that period the newberry period from 2000 bc to ad1 it's also got a foot in the very center of it and uh, i write about the foot and it's a it's a fertility sign this foot thing there's a, mm. a you know pr- it's prominent in the uh Sort of indigenous cosmology to talk about feet as having sort of a reproductive symbolism gig it's even in the Bible by the way when they when they talk about a association, they said they she spent the night at his feet <laughs> hmm. <laughs>
0: that,
2: that's the That's the line that it says to sort of avoid talking yeah. about the uh, other element, but it's a foot turning into. Of projectile point turning into a foot, and the projectile point is is emanating these rays, these power lines, as you call them, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. That projectile point-looking thing with the that looks like a foot turning into a projectile point. You're totally right. To the right of that, there is another foot that looks more obviously like a foot above the yes, yes, the kind of deformed picture of a, a person or something like that. But what gets me is the animal underneath all of that, the horn coming off of that animal, is attached. It goes right up through on a line right up to the foot that's in the center of it. I mean, that looks like it was an element of the drawing, not some sort of feature of the rock.
2: No, no, it is it is. It's a connecting it's a connection. And again, I know I can beat a dead horse, but this this particular panel screams to me the issue the issues of fertility and reproduction and resurrection and renewal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the part of that is this this obsession with snakes that had to do with their losing of their skin, where they shed their skin and they come back again. And part of the ancient Uto aztecan and even the actual, you know, classic high cultures of Mexico oh. had a fascination or an obsession with snakes having to do with this, this the resurrection theme, the theme of death and life, right. life, life and death. When one opens up a, an individual and looks inside of them, of course, you see the veins, the arteries, and the um, elements of the stomach, and they all look like snakes. And so this kinship of energy, energetics, and vitality coming from these snake-like organs was something that was part of the cosmology of yeah. the of the indigenous people in the high cultures of Mexico.
1: All right, with that, let's take a break and we'll come back on the other side and continue talking about this amazing panel. Don't forget to check it out in the show notes so you can follow along with what we're saying. Back in a minute.
0: Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our US-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah,
1: that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's.
0: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help.
1: Welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast, episode 119, and we are talking about a fascinating panel that was recently discovered in California near the Coso Range. And again, look down in your show notes if you haven't done so already and pull up an image of this because it is just fascinating what you see, all the different elements when you're looking at it. And one of the things that struck me as we were kind of going to break a little bit was in the bottom right-hand corner... There's two things that are interesting to me. One is the apparent star and it's like a five pointed star. Like we would draw as a child, you know, and, and it looks like there might be even some things coming down from it. Almost like it's a, like shooting stars, you know, like a, like traces or something like that. And they're all kind of coming down on top of this, this human figure that has what looks like a cross in its like head. And I know a cross symbol is not unique yes, to Christianity. Absolutely. Yeah, It's just a symbol. It's just a, it's just a drawing, but it's really interesting. This whole, this whole group of elements here.
2: So the biggest figure in the panel is down at the base. The smallest mm-hmm. figure is up at the top. The top figure, besides having a face as a star has a wand and is holding a snake, either holding one snake or even have another snake. And there's a, Multiple snakes. They have snakes that look like lightning and that end in projectile Mm -hmm. points, that end in projectile points. And that again is something that's very characteristic of the Udo Aztecan cultures, the Pueblos in the Southwest, the Hopi, the Zuni, and the high cultures of even uh, Mexico. And they see these projectile points raining down from these supernatural beings, these gods and goddesses, and they see them as inseminating elements that they would go down into the earth and fructify or create new life. You see what I mean? It's like rain. Yeah. It's rain, it's lightning, it's a projectile point, And all of these things are piercing this mother earth metaphor and growing plants, causing life to ascend. How's that?
1: You know, you just said something that just made me think because, and I never really thought about this before, but I'd never really looked at the snakes and things like that where were drawn in this detail. These ones that clearly have like diamond shaped heads representing the, the diamond shaped nature of the, the rattlesnake. There's definitely snakes out here in the West that have that shape. And, and I know that those snakes don't exist all over the world. But I wonder if just in some places, the triangular shaped nature of the the deadly projectile point is mimicked after the triangle shape of the deadly (laughs) snake head. the way that it strikes at its prey.
2: I have never thought, I have never thought about that, but I'm, I'm sure that, (laughs) that, that that metaphorically, and now, you know, an analogy again, you've got the projectile point form of the rattlesnake and the projectile point form of the points, the darts and the arrow points, and they, they mirror Mm -hmm. one another. Additionally, the lightning strikes, that you know that crash of thunder and that bolt of lightning is mimicked by the rattle of the rattlesnake and that hissing noise that they make and then the strike of the rattlesnake's bite where they rear back and then they bite you mm-hmm. so that was seen as lightning that was another another mm-hmm. analogous a metaphor for lightning right and and of course you know the lightning the thunder hmm. the rain those are all the most heavenly and ethereal and celestial elements coming from the sky, right? But then you've got that paired mm-hmm. with a with an animal that lives and works and, and, you know, ruminates. Its habitat is the ground. It's on the ground and under the ground. So you've got a, a unification from the highest realm to the lowest realm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, there's wow. a... There's a thing called the journey of ascent and descent, and I've talked about it in my papers. And it's it's one of the cycles that are depicted in in rock art and also in the cosmology, etc. They native people see the world as cyclical, and they see the connections between the heavenly circuit to the terrestrial circuit. And it's a big, huge wheel that continues to go and grow as we move through our lives. And as we begin to understand the nature of things, they're always looking for those kinds of connections, those kinds of relationships, the principles of reciprocity. That's what interfingers in everything about Native culture. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, it does.
1: I mean, they were so connected and, you know, tuned to the land and their surroundings that, I mean that only makes sense. I mean, to a degree that there's no way we could ever truly understand a panel like this and and the symbolism involved. I mean, we may be guessing at some things based on oh yeah, oh yeah, of course, ethnographic evidence. But yeah, how close are we?
0: (laughs) I wonder. Well,
2: that's that's the thing. There's a woman. Her name is Carolyn Boyd. She wrote a book on the Mm -hmm. white white, the white shaman panel. It's in the Pecos section, the Pecos River. There in South Texas. And the whole yeah. book is, is deconstructing a single panel of rock art. And she argues that she can, in fact, understand or deconstruct this, this very complex panel because it demonstrates or it creates or communicates the creation narrative of the Huichol mm-hmm. and of the Nahua people. And it won the 2000, mm. and I think, f- five award for the best new book for the Society for American Archaeology. So, using ethnographic analogy, using a deep time understanding, uh, linguistics, and also examining, you know, cross culturally, the nature of these symbols, I think we we can at least mm-hmm. approach some sort of a distant understanding of some of the communications that this kind of panel or this kind of esoterica is uh, really telling us. I don't think we got it right. I don't think we even got it close to right, but we may be asking the right questions. How's that?
1: Yeah, possibly. And... You know speaking of questions, I've got a lot of questions about the big dude down on the bottom here because just the the wavy, almost ethereal nature of this being and then this kind of line that goes across at its neck shoulders, I don't know because he's got like a point like a dotted head like it's almost like you know like somebody who's almost high on drugs, like that's how your head would feel. Well, and then he's got a snake in one hand, yep,
2: yep like a plant in the other. Right, and, the, and that, that plant is probably the, the visual shorthand for a bighorn sheep. You know those he, that, that head thing there, that's what they use in the cosos everywhere to show bighorn sheep. You've got one of them upwards in the right with the, with the two dots under the horns. See, there it is again. It's a visual shorthand for the bighorn mm-hmm. sheep horn. To yeah. mean, it means bighorn sheep. And you're exactly right that that particular individual – if we use the shamanistic model, the explanatory platform would be under altered states of consciousness. And that's how you feel when you're taking psychotropics, you lose all sense of who you are. You meld into other things. You feel as though you're part of the universe. Your head is gone. Right. And your, your, your whole Mm -hmm. body, like it's melting away and that's what it's showing.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like that before.
2: No, and I hadn't either. It's, it's very, yeah. it's very yeah. representational. It's very indicative. Now, at that ethereal individual's foot, right, on the
1: mm-hmm.
2: rightmost foot right above there, there's a thing that looks like it's sort of a, I don't know, like a safety pin that sort of inverted you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is the symbol that's being used all over the Great Basin for our famous wing trap. The wing traps. Remember the wing traps we talked about that they use to to shuttle mm. the bighorn sheep yeah. to kill. Them? That's what that is. It's exactly right. that symbol. Yeah. Wow. That's that's at the Parowan Gap. That's all. That's at Nye Mall Canyon. That is the symbol that they use to show that they are cordoning off and assembling a hunting party to kill antelope, bighorn sheep, deer, some sort of big game animal. Isn't that amazing?
1: Wow, that is amazing. All right, let's take one more break and then spend a little more time talking about this panel. Uh, Okay. Yeah, we need to take a minute to think about this and and give everybody else a chance to think about it. And then we'll come back on the other side and keep talking about it. Back in a minute. You got it.
0: You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra,
1: just perfection and a straw. Welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast, episode 119. We're talking about this fascinating panel. Again, look down in your show notes and find an image of it. I want to talk about two things. The first one is the animal that is probably the, the lower animal and kind of in the center. And it's it's next to the, the kind of shamanistic figure and, and by the safety pin, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. It's got sort of a U-shaped indentation with a, line, a very clear line that was carved specifically into it right in the center. Does that represent yeah. like a wound or femininity or something like that? Probably represents
2: a womb, not a wound, but a womb, ah. W-O-M-B. And right. you know, again, pen, penetrating and, and indicating that this is more about fertility and about the uh, you know reconnection of animals with uh, growth and abundance and reproduction. You mentioned this, that, you know, all their, all their tails are up or parallel to the ground, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what does that mean, doctor? It means they're ready to receive. They're fertile. Yeah. <laughs> they're they're op- open for reproduction, open for business. So yeah. God, God bless them. Yeah. And that's what we found when we talked to the wildlife biologists who tell us that only during the rut period when the females are in estrus, do they wag their tails? And they certainly mm-hmm. are in an upwards motion demonstrating their availability for fertility and reproduction. Mm. So that's, that's interesting. Yeah. And then um, I think one of the last things I want to talk about, which is something I've, I've literally just recognized, is that that wand that's in the uppermost figure mm-hmm. appears in the Kos many times, about half a dozen mm. different times. And it's it's kind of a bifurcated pointed wand that looks like it's almost like a divining stick, like a a Y shaped like a Y. And I mm-hmm. always wondered about that. And it turns yeah. out that Bernard Jones identified and described those kinds of wands. And they said they talked to a, a Hopi elder, and the Hopi are Uto-Aztecan isolate out in the American Southwest. And it's one of the oldest continuously and most conservative group that we've got there that retain their sort of archaic religious metaphors unchanged. Wow. And so they said, oh, that wand, we use that, you know, during our sun ceremonies. And also it, re- it represents the balance of the universe, the good, the bad, the old, the new, the young, the fresh, the, you know, the the, the disabled. And it, it helps us to understand more about the cosmic nature of mm-hmm. our you know, celestial sphere. And the people that hold those are our sun watchers. Oh, really? Who are they? Well, they're mm-hmm. the people that, that watch the movement of the sun and tell us when the sun stops its movements in the heavens. And we have to pray and ask our creator gods to get the energy of the sun to you know, move ahead and go back on its travels and pick it up and not have it stand still anymore and move again and, you know, keep the universe going. <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's times, it's a time of world renewal and it's a very dark time and a very serious time when we have to do that because, you know, we're holding life in the balance. If the sun doesn't move, we're not going to be able to live. Mm-hmm. So that's called the winter solstice. Hmm. That's about the time of Christmas, about December 21st to December mm-hmm. 25th. And if you look at the sun in the sky, it's a time when for three or four or five days, it literally sits in the same location in the sky. Right. Wow. So, so there's one right there. And then this panel is very unusual because it has so much of a celestial and sky and night sky sort of appearance to it. There's stars, there's Mm -hmm. trails, there's all this other stuff going on here that sort of has a much more cosmic flavor to it than anything I've ever seen in the Kosos.
1: Mm. Yeah.
2: The only other place I've seen that kind of emphasis was at Mary's Cave. And Mary's Mm. Cave is the place where they actually have demonstrated that that is an observatory, for the movement of the sun Mm -hmm. and that they have a horizon marker during the winter solstice that is uh, directly across from Hmm. that viewing point. And an astronomer spent the better part of 20 years proving or demonstrating that that was in fact the case.
1: Wow. One of the other things I wanted to make sure we get in here because you mentioned it a little bit, I think at the beginning as just an element, but the, the center, one of the center things here is the projectile point foot thing <laughs> that has these yes, lines yes. radiating out from it. And you call them power lines and they really do look like yeah some sort of, you know, sci-fi movie where some sort of electricity is coming off of something.
2: Right. If you read the ethnography, current ethnography from the native people mm-hmm. of Numic, Udo-Aztecan background, they will tell you that the that the central principle of one of their cosmic elements, a hallmark of their religion, is the concept of puha or buha, that everything has mm. power. It's electricity, it's so it's a it's an engine that keeps things moving and connected and powerful and cosmic and sacred and all of that all wrapped up together. And so the spiritual energy. Mm can be accessed only by those that, you know, open themselves up to these realms of non-ordinary reality mm. because they can't be seen or sensed otherwise. So the way you can do that is by altered states of consciousness, not necessarily using drugs or other things, but you can do it through, you know, chanting, drumming from from just arduous exercise, mm-hmm. from gazing in the mountains. There's all kinds of different ways to do this, but it's, it's akin to some of our religious practitioners who pray and then receive and, and move into this ethereal realm and feel like they're one with the universe.
1: Hmm. Wow.
2: Yeah. That's, (laughs) it's
1: so much to, so much to take in. And
2: if you've ever taken drugs like I have, Way, way back in the 1960s and you've done sort of you know uh, psychotropic stuff not LSD but what's the other one the ps- psilocybin you see those power lines yeah. and you see those you see those shafts when you move your hand there's a trail that is is mm. visible and the colors are intensified anyways wow. so as though uh, people that that you know open themselves up to this other reality, this alternate, alternative state of, of the universe mm-hmm. are provided with a bit of a picture, a different sense than conventional folks that, you know, don't do crazy things like
1: that. Right. All right. Well, one last thing here, as we're wrapping this up, I'm just wondering if you've heard of any preliminary analysis on the actual morphology of this thing and, and how it's been constructed and to see it, if a lot of this, if they think a lot of this was put together at about the same time, or if they're elements drawn on top of each other, and 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 possibly at many different times, it all. And this is a drawing that we're looking at, so it's hard to tell from this this
2: angle. But it all
1: looks pretty fresh and like it was drawn at the same time.
2: I would argue that most of it is very fresh, and it was done in a in a, in a singular or extended foray into assembling these these elements. Mm-hmm. I think that some of them may have been added a little bit later, but I'd say that, you know, 90, 95% of them were, were ensconced during a singular or extended period of production. That's what I would believe.
1: Okay. All right. Well, any final thoughts on this panel, doctor? This is pretty fascinating. Pretty outrageous. (laughs) It's,
2: (laughs) it's, it's, it's a, a example of this endlessly engaging exercise that I'm involved in. I think it helps one to sort of get a, get a sense of some of the some of the things we talked about you know we had a couple of discussions about amerindian perspectivism and this certainly espouses it with all the variability and all the connections that's that are made between humankind and Mm -hmm. animals and celestial bodies all interacting in a mosaic and an interactive one at that if one wanted to better understand the native theology i think if you stared at this panel long enough you might get a a glimmer of what that's like wow all right well i think with that we will wrap
1: it up i mean if you got any questions send them in contact info is in the show notes but definitely take a look at this image and just see what you think about the images and and what you can make of some of this stuff and what you think it might mean because you can't do any worse than we're probably doing right now (laughs) because it's hard to say sometimes so definitely take a look see you in the
2: flip-flop gang
1: thanks for listening to the rock art podcast with dr alan garfinkel and chris webster find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends